Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Hi, good morning. So, my name is Peter, and as Owen says, I've been at Beacon for quite a number of years now. And, and this morning, we're going to be looking at um, the subject of prayer. And those who were here last week, Owen bridged the gap, really, between the previous series we did on evangelism and the coming series that we're now going into on prayer. And over the coming weeks, we'll be looking at different aspects of prayer, different specific prayers in the Bible, and... Oh, I'm not sure that PowerPoint's quite aligned, but that's fine. Um, and I'm going to be looking at one of those things today. And it's quite hot, isn't it? So the good thing is this isn't like a really detailed, picking out really technical things. This is kind of an Old Testament story. So if all you do is enjoy a story, well, that's okay, because it is hot. And the story you're going to look at is actually of two different kings in the Old Testament. And they're father and son. And the first is Ahaz, and then his son Hezekiah takes um, the reign after him. And they both deal with quite a difficult situation, and, but their response to that situation is, is very different. Um, and I think we can learn something of the way in which they respond and how that can help us as we think about difficulties and challenges in our lives. And it might come as no surprise that one of those differences is prayer. So that's how prayer sort of feeds in to this story. And just a bit of background. So Ahaz takes the throne in 730 BC, so a long time ago, and he's the king of Judah. So at this point in, in history, there's been a division in Israel. And so you've got northern tribes that kind of almost slightly confusingly continue to be called Israel. And then you've got the southern tribe called Judah. And there's been that division. And Ahaz takes the throne of Judah. And partway through his reign, Israel, the northern tribes, actually get defeated by Syria. So there's been many, many years of disobedience and eventually those northern tribes of Israel are defeated. And suddenly now Ahaz, king of Judah, he is facing that same threat. So his challenge is very different to what we might have today. He's a king facing the threat of an army attacking him. And this is what he does to respond. I don't know if we've got... Great, okay, it's aligned. So this is, this is what he says. And this is him speaking out to the king of another empire, the Assyrian Empire. So what he does, it's almost like the enemy of the enemy is my friend. And so he makes a pact where he reaches out for help from one of his enemies to try and join forces. And he says, I'm your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. And the king of Assyria, he agrees. um, But it's at quite a great cost to Judah, actually. They have to give away lots of treasures from their temples and they give lots of precious metals away and a number of their people are are then sort of moved around this Assyrian empire. So there's quite a cost to Judah. But I wonder whether you've got sympathy with Ahaz for that response because he's facing a very real threat. He's in a difficult position, knows that, militarily speaking, he's going to lose this battle, and he thinks, well, maybe we have sympathy. Maybe we think, well, it's quite a sensible, pragmatic response to a challenge in his life. Reach out. There's no bloodshed. There's no massacre of his people do we have some sympathy for that quite pragmatic and practical response to a very difficult situation? I wonder whether we might do the same thing. Well, I might have some sympathy, and we might have some sympathy, but actually the Bible doesn't have much sympathy for Ahaz at all. 
And what we see next, um, one of the verses later, it says, Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. And then towards the end of Ahaz's reign, the Bible says that Ahaz had shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. It's quite an interesting verse, isn't it? Ahaz had shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. One of the commentaries I read on this passage helped, I think, me understand what that might mean. Um, So the commentator said, so about the start, Ahaz, quite practically, with pragmatism, had sort of reached out to a pagan god, people who worshipped other gods, and kind of sort of added God's truth into the mix, tried to kind of deal with both things, and it seemed quite a sensible way of dealing with an issue. But almost like a drip, drip, drip effect through the course of his reign, suddenly towards the end of his reign, you look back and actually you don't see much reflection of God's truth at all. It's been watered down, it's a bit of a mishmash. It's almost as though God's not home anymore, that Ahaz has actually shut down the door on God. So there's certainly no sympathy for the way in which Ahaz, in his difficult situation, has reached out for external help, gone straight to fix-it mode. He hasn't come to God. And the Bible is quite damning of that decision. I think one thing I learned from this, and it's quite sobering, it's quite challenging, is that God doesn't tolerate being shared. God doesn't give us room to join him with other truths, in inverted commas, or other ways of living. He's got very high standards, and he does call us to live to his ways. And it's quite sobering that though it might be practical and pragmatic, though even it may be something that saved lives even, possibly, God still calls us to follow his ways exclusively, and he doesn't tolerate being shared. And Jesus says something with very provocative language, which is quite similar. He says, if it, oh, it's like a news bulletin. It's like, this is, uh, um, it's like the headline item. Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's strong, isn't it? It's very provocative. If you don't hate... I mean, I think clearly we all know that he isn't saying literally to hate our families, to follow him, but I think he's underscoring that point that we really are called to follow him exclusively. We're not to kind of mix him and following God with other ways of living and other things, even if there's popular opinion, even if you get praise for that cooperative attitude. There's a call from God to follow him exclusively, and Ahaz didn't do it. I know from personal experience, I tried that kind of delicate balancing of things when I was at university, um, wanting to kind of continue to follow God, but also, as with many kind of maybe pressure, maybe just blatantly just wanting to live other ways, and tried to pretend that I could do both, that I could maintain ways for God and in in other ways during the rest of the week, perhaps after church had finished, live quite differently and probably started off thinking I was doing okay with it. I look back now at that time and I think, drip, drip, drip effect. I shut out God. God didn't leave me, but I kind of closed the door on him. At that time, my life is real, real wasted years. And there's a real lesson, I think, in what we see of the way the Bible talks of Ahaz, that we shouldn't do that when we choose to follow God. Now, that's all been really hard-hitting, I think, probably as an intro. It's been quite sobering, hasn't it? 
The good news is that the next king that we look at shows quite a different response to a challenge. Um, the challenge is similar. We get to look at Hezekiah, and actually Judah, in that sense, only had to wait one generation to kind of see how God wants us to respond to difficulties. Um, so Hezekiah takes the throne of Judah in 715 BC, but he has a very similar difficulty to face as his father did. Um, by now, the Assyrians have actually not just wanting to be in a pact with Judah, they actually now want to defeat Judah. And so actually, Hezekiah is now facing the very real threat of the Assyrian Empire on its doorstep outside Jerusalem. Now, this Assyrian Empire has never been defeated. It's the biggest known empire at that point in history. Again, same position. In terms of military strength, this is only going to go one way. Hezekiah sees the threat. He starts to build um, or fortifies the Jerusalem walls and so on. He makes a decision to stop the natural spring water flowing outside of the walls so that if an army is camped out there, they can't have access to this water. So he makes some quite deliberate military decisions. The Assyrians start to really throw accusations. And in fact, they send some men just up to the walls to sort of start mocking God. And, they, and the Bible says they speak in the language of the people of Judah so that they can understand, just to put fear into them. Hezekiah in that, I don't think it comes up on the screen, but this is an amazing response that Hezekiah has. He says to his own people, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed before the king of Assyria and all the horde that is with him. For there are more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Not literally more of them. There's way more of the army. But in this economy, having God with him, actually they're in the significant majority. It's an amazing response. Nevertheless, these accusations keep coming. I won't read the whole passage out because it is long. But some of the, the accusations that keep getting thrown across these walls, quite literally, is paper messages that get passed over and also verbal insults. People saying, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? Is not Hezekiah misleading you? And the things like, do you not know who I am and my fathers have done to all the peoples of other lands? Why do you think you can stop us any more than they did? And it says at the end of um, chapter 32 of Two Chronicles, they spoke, that is these messengers, they spoke of the God of Jerusalem as they spoke of the God of the peoples of the earth, which are the work of men's hands. Just very mocking. You can't, you can't deal with this situation. Look at us. You're in a problem here. Why don't you just surrender effectively? Who do you think you are to stand against us? I just want to pause there. What would you do? What would you do if you were Hezekiah at that point? What would we do if some people approached us outside these, these walls right here and threatened us and told us to scatter, told us... To... What would you do? How do you respond to threat? How do you respond to difficulty? We saw how Ahaz responded... Hezekiah must have, would he have been tempted to do the same, maybe just make an agreement, save lives? This is what he did, and you'll be pleased to know he gets to the prayer bit. He prays. He calls Isaiah, the prophet, and together they come and they pray. They receive one of these letters that I said, these mocking letters really from the army, and I think the next verse is on the screen. Yeah, Hezekiah received the letter 
from the hand of the messengers and read it. Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, for all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Do you want to know how the story ended? The next evening, an angel of the Lord came and struck dead 185,000 Assyrian army fighters. The rest that woke up saw all these dead bodies and scattered. And it was an amazing victory for, for God and the people of Judah. Why pray? Why pray? We've seen a contrast there between two kings in very similar situations. What was it about prayer that was important? Why did Hezekiah pray? Why did God respond to prayer? I think it's easy sometimes to think of prayer as a transaction with God. But I want to try and encourage us to think of it as just a prayer relationship with God. Not to think of it as some technical transaction, but to think of it as being in relationship with him. Why does God want us to pray? I think we know that God wants us to do things that are good for us. And he asks us to pray. What is it that prayer does that is good for us? Why does God want us to pray? Now, I think there are lots of reasons. And over the coming weeks, I think we'll look at lots of them. I just want to really look at one thing this morning. I know good sermons have three points. This one's got one. Um, But it might be easier to remember. Um, When I look at this story, I think the next slide, that's the thing I just want us to remember as we leave today, that prayer corrects our perspective. Prayer corrects our perspective. And I think that's why God wants us to pray, to correct our perspective of the difficulties in our life, the threats we face, the problems. Is being practical and pragmatic okay? I think so. I hope it is, because I'm very quick to go to pragmatism, I think. And in fact, even Hezekiah did do practical things. He fortified the city. He stopped the water reaching the enemy's camps. So practical work is okay. And of course, if we don't do anything practical, we're just standing around doing nothing. So that's okay. But I think it just, this story shows it just needs to be in the right order. Things need to be in the right order. Hezekiah's first response was to reach out to God in prayer. And... Again, another commentator, I think he said, this helps me understand it a bit, a clear view of how to cope with the crisis meant that Hezekiah looked first not to the threat, nor to the threatened, but to God who was over both. Just read that again. A clear view of how to cope with the crisis meant that Hezekiah first, must first look not to the threat, nor to the threatened, but to God who was over both. 
And in the next slide, that very first part of his prayer, I think is what helps Hezekiah get that correct perspective, that clear view. He just declares who God is. He just comes in prayer to God and declares who he is. He declares that God is Lord over all. He made heaven and earth. And when we come in prayer, whatever we are facing, whatever challenge, however big, if we see God as he is and we come to him and acknowledge it in prayer, it just puts in perspective actually how big those other things are. Prayer corrects our perspective when we see God as he truly is. Why does that help? I think one of the overflows of seeing a true perspective of who God is versus our difficulties in life is it's a natural thing to then want him in to help. When you know and you recognise someone, a God who loves you, who is abundantly bigger than what you're facing, it's a natural flow of the heart to want him in, to come and help you. And in fact, Hezekiah's prayer goes on to say, Lord, please save us from the hands of this army. When you have a true perspective of God versus everything else in your life, and prayer is a really healthy way of that forming, then the overflow is that we'll invite him in. As opposed to what I did at university, what maybe Ahaz did in that you just so quickly go to fix things mode, you don't acknowledge God, maybe not intentionally, you're just so quick you get the order wrong, you go straight to trying to fix something, you miss out the perspective of God entirely. Those issues then seem overwhelmingly big. It's just, it's so clear why God says it's good to pray, because we invite him in. My, my experience, and I think my just understanding of scripture, is that God often doesn't impose himself on us when, we go, when we're going through difficult things in our lives. He wants to be invited in. Hezekiah invited him into the very real situation he was facing. It's so easy just to go straight to fixing something, and we don't invite God in. And God wants to be invited into whatever we're facing in life, however difficult. Now, we're not kings and queens here facing armies and fighting and so on. But we do, I'm sure, all have difficulties that we're facing at times, and maybe some of us facing these even now. And, you know, these can, I've just listed a few things, it's clearly not exhaustive, but we might be here right now out of work, really needing work. We might be in work, but having an abusive boss. Maybe some of us have got a broken family life. Maybe some of you here are in a broken relationship or one that feels it's beyond repair. Maybe some of you want a relationship but don't have one. Maybe some of you want children but don't have them. Maybe some of you have children but find it being a parent really difficult. Maybe some of you got health problems. Maybe some of you have got family with health problems. Maybe some of you have parents who are getting old and all the challenges it brings. I don't read that list lightly and don't want to pretend those are not very, very, very real and painful things to be going through. I haven't been through many of them, so I really don't want to be patronising and reading that list so quickly. I do just want to say gently, if I can, that God is bigger than them all. Whatever you're going through now, you can invite him in.
how do I sum up what I've just been sharing? I hope I've said it a few times that prayer corrects our perspective on all the issues we face. Prayer helps us see God as he truly is, that he is bigger. He's greater than all of these things. However real and painful they are, he is bigger. When we come to God in prayer, it's a natural response. When we see him as he really is, to invite him in, and he's waiting to be invited in. Whatever you're going through, he wants to be in there to help you. Does it alleviate things straight away? I don't know. But he does want to be in there amongst the pain with you, whatever you're going through, whatever challenge you're facing. Please don't do what I did for a number of years, which was to think I could balance him with other things, try and become overly practical, think I could cope, and actually just swore that I shut him out. He wants to help. Maybe if we live that way, I want to live that way, we might have the following sort of said of us by God, and I think the next verse just shows an amazing... I've underlined some of these things just to make them stand out. Some of the amazing things which are written about Hezekiah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there were none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went, he prospered. I believe a healthy prayer life enabled Hezekiah to hold fast to the ways of God when pressure mounted. Just one final story on prayer as I close. I was at a church meeting years and years ago when I was growing up in Southampton. And one of the leaders told a story which has stuck with me since. And he told of a man in the church who was dying. And the man wasn't particularly old, but he'd been given news he had weeks left to live. And so the man who was in hospital invited the leader to come and sit with him and pray with him, which he did. And as they were praying, the leader said to him something that was probably surprising and said to him that he felt God wanted the man to die well. To live his last weeks for God in a way that he hadn't before. That God would make up for the many wasted years in those last few weeks. And that, he'd, and that God would be bringing him home soon. And I wonder whether he felt, oh, that's, I'm sure a leader is going to pray and tell me about healing. And there are times clearly when that is the case. But here God said to him, die well. And that man then, he wrote down 26 names of people he wanted to see saved in the last few weeks he had left. And, if, and apparently, as, as, I was, as he was telling the story, the man, when he heard this, this sort of instruction to die well, apparently his whole demeanour changed. All the anxiety and the fear of death all went. Almost physically, he could see a difference in his persona. And he wrote down 26 names of people he wanted to know Christ in the last few weeks he had left. And one by one, as these people came and visited him in hospital, 25 of the 26 people gave their life to Christ as he was able to say, I'm going home soon to an amazing God who loves you. The 26th person was his nurse, who was looking after him when he died. She became a Christian the next day because she said, I've never seen someone die so well. I've never seen someone have peace in death like he had. And I want to know that peace. 
tell that story because whatever we are going through, even in the most extraordinary, extraordinarily difficult situation where we might even be told we've got weeks left to live, we can come, we can respond in two ways. This man in prayer, they heard the call of God, they heard his direction, and he was invited into the problem. He was invited into the situation. And God did something really beautiful out of a very, very painful place. So whatever you're going through, please invite God in. Come to him in prayer. Recognize him, who he is. Invite him in and he will do something very, very beautiful amidst the pain that you're going through, amidst the challenge you're facing. We might get a a surprising response when we come and pray to God. Um, God's ways are very different to our ways. Um, I kind of think it's good to have him involved rather than do what I did for a number of years and close the door. So I think the band are maybe just going to come up and maybe just lead us in, in a song. I don't know how people want to respond to this, if at all. But you might be facing one of those things that I read out or many other things right now, and they're very real and they're very painful, and I don't want to pretend they're not. I just want to encourage you just to pray. Come to your Father in heaven. Declare him who he is and allow him to remind you that he is bigger, that he is sovereign and that you can invite him into the very thing you're facing. Thanks. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.